All right, so like I told you, my name is Carl Brower. I'm one of the ministers here at the Parkway Church, and my area of responsibility is family ministry, which really means uh, any person who is birthed to 18 years old uh, kind of falls under my care and uh, uh, attention. Uh, in addition to those people, my hope is, is to be able to care for and minister to the families of those kiddos. Uh, and so if you are one of them, if you have kids, whether they're infants or one-year-olds or whether you've got a junior in high school or a fourth grader, I just want you to know that my heart is for you. I desire to help you and serve you and, and be a support to you in any way that you have need. So if there's any a time, ever a time, where you desire to have a conversation about those kinds of things, please let me know. I'd love, love to visit with you about that. So a uh, little bit about myself. So I come from a musical background, uh, meaning that's what my education is in. I spent a, a great number of years studying music, in particular, the French horn. So I played French horn for a living, for about 20 years. Uh, that's what I did my undergrad degree in, that's what I did a master's degree in, and so I am really, really qualified to talk to you about French horn. <clears throat> so I hope that you're ready to talk about the history and nuance of that instrument this morning, because that's where we'll be going. That is not true. So, um, but I, I have a lot of background in, in music. It was the summer of uh, 2007 when I believe the Lord called me into ministry. Uh, I did not really understand or follow that call until about a year later. <clears throat> Pardon me. But uh, uh, in 2007, the Lord called me out of the musical world and into the world of ministry, and uh, have been doing that ever since, and it's been a great, great joy for me. I got to join the staff here at Parkway uh, back in November of this past year, and it has been a, just a boon to my heart to be a part of this place. You people are life-giving. It's a really, really sweet gift to me and my family to be here and to be a part of this body. So I just want to say thank you uh, for welcoming our family and allowing us to be a part of what you guys are doing. What the Lord is doing among you is really a gift. So uh, this morning, we are going to continue with our talk about the doctrine of Scripture. So we've been talking about the scriptures from a whole bunch of different angles. We've been looking at uh, where did they come from? How did the canon of scripture come together? We've looked at uh, uh, we've looked at how they are sufficient, which is what we talked about last week. We've talked about how they are inspired. How did the Holy Spirit work in getting the scriptures to be what we have today, and all these sorts of things? And today we're going to continue that conversation by talking about two more doctrines: the necessity. Now, Jeff's in the back of the room, so I may spell this wrong. And clarity of Scripture. Necessity and clarity. So necessity being uh, just the idea, uh, the question of like, are the Scriptures necessary for anything? And if so, what? What are they necessary for? And then clarity, the idea of are they clear? Are the Scriptures clear enough for you and I to interact with them, to understand them, to make sense of them without having some sort of uh, special team that helps me understand them? Am I capable of understanding the Scriptures because of what God has done to them? Am I now able to understand them? So these are the two questions we're going to be looking at. So uh, this morning, we're going to start with the first one, necessity. So uh, the question is, necessity of Scripture, necessary for what? What are they necessary for? So last week, uh, Zach was talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, the question being, uh, are the Scriptures sufficient for any given subject? And sufficiency being, in particular, uh, does God give us everything that he requires us to know about any given subject in the Scriptures? 
And so as he talked through that topic last week, one of the things he talked about was, uh, are the scriptures sufficient for heart surgery? Do you remember this example, those of you that were here? Okay, so are the scriptures sufficient for heart surgery? And the answer is yes. I heard some no's. That's okay. Yes. So the scriptures are sufficient for heart surgery. Uh, And just as a reminder, the reality is, is that they are sufficient for everything that God requires us to know about a given subject. So it's not that the scripture is going to teach you how to do heart surgery, but everything that you and I are required by God to know about heart surgery is available to us in the scriptures. So in terms of if we have a relative that's undergoing heart surgery, I understand that the scriptures are sufficient for me to know how to minister to and care for that individual. They're not gonna teach me how to hold a scalpel. The scriptures are not gonna teach me how to handle post-op, how to handle somebody if they're bleeding where they shouldn't be bleeding during surgery, these kinds of things, because that's not something God requires us to know. So the sufficiency of scripture is this idea that the scriptures contain everything that God requires us to know about any subject. So the question is, are the scriptures sufficient for whatever? The answer is yes, okay? Today we're talking about necessity. So let's take that same example and apply it to the word necessity. So are the scriptures necessary for heart surgery? No, they're not. What is necessary for heart surgery is for you to go to medical school. It's necessary for you to go to medical school. Well, it's not necessary. I suppose you could do heart surgery without it, but it would be a terrible idea. But you want to go to medical school. You want to get trained. You want to go spend an internship, and you want to do all of these steps of training to become a proficient surgery so that when someone comes and is in need of heart surgery, that you have the requisite necessary training. The scriptures are not necessary for that. The scriptures are necessary, but not for everything. They're not necessary for heart surgery. They're not necessary for plumbing. They're not necessary for playing the French horn. The scriptures are necessary for some things. But let me ask you a question. Do you think that the scriptures are necessary to know that God exists? Okay, I got a, I got a very emphatic no from this side of the room. Who thinks that the scriptures are, are necessary to know that God exists? Who thinks that they are not necessary for knowing God exists? Well done, you guys are nailing it, okay? So the scriptures are not necessary for knowing that God exists. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. And so what's, what's happening is that the scriptures are telling us that all of creation screams of God's existence. Everything in creation yells out, God made me, God made me, God made me. And the scriptures are saying that we, you and I, even those who practice unrighteousness, those who are far from God, can see his existence, can see that he is there in the very fabric of creation. So we do not need the scriptures to tell us that God is real. God has showed that to us in everything. It is a grace that he gives to all of creation. He says, I am here. I have made this stuff. Look around you. Everything God made screams, he made me. God made me. So do we need the Bible to know that God exists? No, we do not. God has revealed himself in all of creation. 
Now, do we need the Bible to know? Is the Bible necessary for knowing something about God's moral law, about his ethics? Is there something, is there something about that that we can know apart from the scriptures? Yes, there is. Same thing. The same idea is that this passage from Romans is teaching us, showing us that God has revealed to us in creation that not only is he here, but he expects something of us. He is here and he wants us to respond to him. He is real and he requires something of us. And what that is exactly, we, can't, we might not necessarily be able to, to suss out. But there is an inherent fabric of our being that says, I know that God is there and I know he wants something from me. He's created me and I owe him something. And so this idea in Romans that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now the scriptures go on to say, but they ignore them. They ignore what they see. Those who do not follow the Lord, they ignore what has been revealed to them and they take what is truth and they exchange it for a lie. They make their own gods. So they recognize that there is a God. They recognize that he has dominion and power and authority over their lives, but they don't want it. They don't want to submit to it, so they swap it out for something new. So this idea is that apart from the Scriptures, without the Scriptures, I can know that God exists, and I can know that he has a law. He has a moral, ethical law that is in place. Now, one of the other ways that we can know that this is true is you can go anywhere and ask, what's going to happen if this guy kills this guy? And you can talk to unbelievers, you can talk to believers, you can talk to people of other faiths. Murder is a universally recognized wrong. It is not okay. We all say it's bad. How do we know it's bad? How do we know that murder is a bad thing? You just know it. That's what anyone would tell you. I just know. That's not good. I just know that's bad. And the reason that we know it is because God has revealed something of his moral law in our very existence, in the fiber of us, of our being. God has revealed to us that he is here and that he expects something of us. Now, an example I want to give you about how this looks and how this works is a story I want to tell you that might take a few minutes, but I think it's worth it because it's... Yeah, I think it's a helpful illustration, and it's a good self-deprecation moment for me. So, my father loves Dallas Cowboys football. Okay? Great. Uh, I don't care anything about any sports ever. Okay? Now, I know. Y'all just wrestle with that, and you'll figure out a way to like me anyway. It'll be okay. So, uh, when I was eight or nine... I began to notice that on Sundays, the way things worked is when we got home from church, dad was in the living room in front of the TV watching the game, and if the Cowboys were doing good, man, he was excited, things were going to go well, lunch was going to be a fun time, and if the Cowboys were not doing well, he might throw a pillow at the TV, and he might be like, are you kidding me, Staubach, right? That's right. That's one of the quarterbacks for the Dallas Cowboys. I used to pay attention to what he yelled. So when I would go through the room... I would see my father being so interested in this thing, and I thought, you know what? I think maybe I should be interested in this thing. So I began to watch the games with him, and so I quickly became aware that what happens is somebody gets the ball, and they run, and when they get to the little weird colored rectangle at the end, everybody gets excited, and there's points. Great. 
I totally get it. I totally get it. That's all there is to it. And then as I began to watch, I was like, man, what? The ball's just sitting there. Why doesn't he just pick that up? And all you have to do is run to the rectangle, man. But they'd sit it, and there'd be these guys huddling up around the ball, but not even paying attention to the ball. And I got really confused about this idea that, man, there, just pick it up and go. Like, because I didn't understand any of the rules. I didn't understand any of the seriousness of how that game is played. I didn't understand that there are boundaries. I didn't understand that there's downs. I didn't understand there's extra points. I didn't understand, I didn't understand any of it. I knew you pick up that ball and you go to the, the rectangle at the end. And so I was aware of the existence of this game, and I was aware of the very basics, the very, very small, tangible hint of how that game is played, but I didn't really understand it at all. I didn't really fully understand how that game works, and the more I understood, the less I cared, and so I stopped paying attention. But the point is, is that God has revealed to us that he exists, and he has revealed to us something about the way he wants things, wants things to be. The fullness of it is found in the scriptures, but there is something inherently true about our existence where we know that he is out there and that he has laws. So are the scriptures necessary to know God exists? No. Are they necessary to know that there's something about his law that we could know something about him? No. What are they necessary for? What are the scriptures necessary for? And there's two things I think we need to talk about. The first one is salvation. The scriptures are necessary for, for salvation. You cannot come to a saving knowledge of Christ apart from the truth of the scripture. It's not possible, okay? Uh, Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then the text goes on in verse 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so it is the scriptures that hold the truth that you and I need to understand and believe in order to be saved. And you might say, well, hang on now, Carl. I've heard tons of people that have gotten saved without a Bible. Somebody goes to some impoverished neighborhood or goes to some foreign land and shares the gospel with people. And they hear it and they understand it and they believe it. And nobody ever opened a Bible, Carl. But what was it that they were telling them? What was it that they were teaching them? They were teaching them the truth of the scriptures. They were teaching them what they know because of what's been revealed to them in the word of God. So we cannot come to a saving knowledge of Christ apart from the scriptures. Anyone who has ever come to faith has come to faith because they have had the truth of God's word illuminated to their heart about who Christ is and what he's done. And that's either come because they've read it directly or someone's told it to them. But no one's ever told someone a story that's different than the scriptures and then that person's come to faith in the Jesus of the Bible. The scriptures are necessary for salvation. Second, knowing God's will. So the scriptures are necessary for us to know with certainty the, the specificity of God's law, what his will is for you and I. So as we said, you don't need the scriptures to know something about this law, something about what God requires, but we do need the scriptures to understand something specific. So our conscience can give us a vague idea, but scripture makes it clear and makes it certain so that there are certain actions and thoughts and attitudes that require us to engage in 
and pursue others, right? So participating in a church, God wants us to be a part of a local body. He wants us to do that. But I can't know that apart from reading the word of God. God wants us to walk in faithfulness to all that he's commanded, and I can't know what he's commanded apart from the scriptures. God wants me to be faithful to my wife, but I don't necessarily know that apart from the scriptures, although there may be a hint of my conscience that tells me that's not, that that's bad. I don't recognize it as being an infraction against God's law apart from his word, and that there are certain actions and thoughts and attitudes that he prohibits adultery, murder, stealing, these kinds of things, and we can understand them clearly and with certainty through the word. So without the scriptures, we could not know with certainty what God's will is for us. The Bible's necessary. So is the Bible necessary for knowing God, that he exists? No. Is it necessary for knowing something about the moral laws of God? No. But it is necessary for salvation, and it is necessary for knowing something specific and concrete about God's law. Okay, let's move on to clarity. Everybody with me so far with necessity? Excellent. So here we go. Clarity. The first thing I want to start with is a different word. Perspicuity. Perspicuity. This word means to have something made clear, made known, revealed, okay? However, that word does not make anything clear to me. It does not reveal anything to me. It is not obvious at all. So this word means to make known, to make obvious, and it is not making anything known or obvious to me. And so we're not going to use that word. Boo! We're not going to use that word. We're going to use this word instead. Clarity, okay? It's not really boo on that word, it's a great word. It's just that word doesn't do the very thing that it talks about doing. So we're gonna use the word clarity instead, okay? So perspicuity is the opposite of obscurity, okay? Obscurity and perspicuity are opposites. So we're gonna talk about the clarity or perspicuity of scripture. So this doctrine, this idea uh, has been around for a long time. Scholars and theologians have talked about it and debated it for a long, long time, but for our purposes, for you and I, as a part of the kind of uh, evangelical, orthodox Christian faith here in the United States, uh, this doctrine in particular for us has implications for helping us speak against something that the Catholic Church teaches. So the Catholic Church would say that yes, you need the Bible, you need the Bible for salvation and these things, but you also need a hierarchy of leadership above you some trained professionals who can understand the word of God because you cannot, and that they are going to interpret the Bible for you and tell you what it means. And you also need the history and tradition of the church. So you need these three things to be a faithful part of God's church. And this doctrine, the doctrine of the perspicuity or the clarity of scripture says no, that's not true. The Bible is clear to you and I, to the average person, we can pick up the Bible and read it and know what God wants us to know from it. His teaching is accessible to you and I. If we come to it with a humble heart, asking for God's help, we can understand. We do not need some hierarchy of leadership who's been trained, who has lots of degrees to tell us what the Bible means and that I should stay away from the Bible because it's only for experts. That is not true. 
So let's talk about what this doctrine does not mean apart from this. So let's break it down into several points. First point is, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture does not mean that we can fully know or understand God. It does not mean that we can fully know or understand God. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. So God is saying to us, you can't understand what I understand. You can't operate in the way I operate. Because he's God. He is infinite. He, his knowledge and understanding goes on forever. There is no end to it. And so you and I cannot know him fully. And that's true now. It's also true for eternity. I can never fully know God. I can never know all that he knows. I can never understand all that he understands. Because if I were to know all that God knows, then I would be God. And I wouldn't need God. I can't know him fully. Romans chapter 11, verse 34 says, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So the clarity of the scripture of God does not mean that we can fully know or understand the mind of God. We can't. He is infinite. We are finite. Number two. The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture does not mean that everything in the Bible is equally simple. And what I want to do here is take a minute and talk about the difference between the word simple or easy and the word clear. Okay? For something to be clear does not necessarily mean that it's simple okay, or easy. Okay? So if I come to a text and I read it and I find it to be difficult, that does not now mean, well, then it's not clear. Nope, it just means it's difficult. We can understand the words of God. We can understand what he wants us to understand. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be equally simple everywhere. Some passages are very clear. You read it once, you're like, okay, I see exactly what I'm being asked to do here. I understand exactly what I'm being told not to do here. And there are other places like, man, I have to wrestle with this. This is tricky. But the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture doesn't mean that because it isn't simple that somehow it isn't clear. And we'll talk about why in just a little bit. So Peter acknowledges this very reality about the fact that there are passages of Scripture that are tricky, that are hard to understand. In uh, one of his letters, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, we've, re- we've gone back and back and back to this verse as we've talked through the doctrine of Scripture. It's a really helpful verse for us to think about what the Scriptures are and how they operate. <clears throat> and it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so Peter is saying here, hey, man, Paul, man, he's great. And he wrote a lot of stuff that's super helpful for us. And it's even, it's even scripture. It's the word of God. And he wrote it. And man, some of that's tricky. Some of that's hard to understand is what Peter's saying. But because it's hard to understand doesn't mean it isn't clear. The lack of clarity that we may have with a given passage is not the fault of the Scriptures. It's the fault of the individual that's trying to read the Scriptures. And we'll talk a little bit more in detail about that. Okay, But it does not mean that they'll always be easy. And so uh, the example I want to give here is a musical one. Surprise, surprise. Okay, 
If I wanted to teach one of you how to play a musical instrument, the French horn, say, I could tell you almost everything you need to know to be really successful on the instrument. I could give you almost every piece of information you need to be able to know how to play that instrument well. And then I could hand it to you, and you would sound terrible. You'd be like, well, I read all the stuff that you, that you wrote down, all the things you told me, Carl, and, and I, you know, I did my lips this way, and I held this thing, and I did all these things, and I breathed this way. I, did, I, I saw all your instructions, but I'm, I'm just, I don't really, the application, I'm not understanding how to make a sound out of this thing. It's this idea that the text is clear. I'm giving you clear instructions. You're the problem. You need to practice. You need to sit down with that thing and practice and practice and practice. And if you do the things I've been telling you to do, you're going to get better at it. And you may even become proficient. You may even come to play it better than I did. Almost certainly now, because I don't play very much anymore. But this idea is that the scriptures are clear. You and I are the filter point that's the problem. Okay, number three. The doctrine of the clarity of scripture does not mean that someone else's interpretation or explanation are somehow unhelpful or or invaluable, not valuable, okay? They are. It's not as though we're saying the scriptures are clear and so don't come to church anymore. You don't need to listen to any sermons. You don't need to read any commentaries. You don't need to study. All you need is just sit at home and read your Bible and you're all set. That is not what the doctrine of clarity is teaching. The doctrine of clarity is teaching you that you don't need an expert to help you understand what God wants you to understand. Are experts helpful? Absolutely. The office of teacher, the office of pastor, the office of preacher, this idea, this is instituted in the scriptures. There's talk of the gift of teaching. So God clearly desires for his word to be taught and to be preached, to be explained, to be expounded upon. He desires that. But he has not made his word so complicated that that's the only means by which you can come to any understanding. Those things are a helpful supplement to you studying the word of God because he desires you to know him in his word. Number four, the doctrine of the clarity of scripture means that all, all doctrines or subjects will, will not be necessarily equally clear in all places. So if I come to a particular idea or concept or doctrine that is really unclear here, it's very likely that it's going to be quite clear over here which means I need to be reading the text as a whole. That means I need to be allowing Scripture to interpret itself. So when I come to the text and I get my blinders on and I focus in on this one confusing verse and I look at it outside of the rest of Scripture and I don't say to myself, well, where else is this talked about? Where else has God revealed to me truth about this notion? Because I have not read my Bible and I do not understand it. Again, the problem is not that the Scriptures aren't clear. It's that you and I are not filtering it well. So if you think about um, uh, like Old Testament versus New Testament, right? Uh, a prophecy versus a fulfillment. Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve have decided that God's rule was not a good one. They knew better. They wanted to be like God, and so they disobeyed and ate the fruit. And now God's like, what are y'all doing? And now he's cursing the serpent, and he's cursing childbirth, and he's cursing the land and these things. And when he's doing this, he says to them, your offspring and the serpent's offspring will be, have enmity between one another. And this one will crush this one's head, and this one will bite this one's heel. What? 
What does that even mean? By itself, that text doesn't mean much, and it's confusing to the reader. But in light of the whole of Scripture, where we see that prophecy fulfilled in the giving of Christ, and we see that he crushes the head of the serpent when he defeats sin and death through his, sin, his sinless life and his death and his burial and then his ultimate resurrection, demonstrating that he is the power of God, that he is God in the flesh, that he has defeated sin and death, it helps us to understand this text better. So it's not that we should have our blinders on and find a verse that's tricky and say, here's a tricky verse, the scriptures aren't clear. But instead say, how can the scriptures help me? How can I let the scriptures interpret themselves? How can I understand this better through the whole of scripture? Number five, the doctrine of the clarity of scripture does not mean that we will understand everything all at once on the first reading, right? So it doesn't mean, now that you've heard this doctrine, you go home, you're like, all right, let's do this. You open your Bible, Genesis 1, and you start reading, and you get to the end of Revelation, I'm all set. I don't understand everything. That's not the way it works. The scriptures are clear, but they're, they're clear in a progressive way. As you continue to read, as you continue to study, as you continue to sit under helpful teaching, you will come to deeper and deeper understanding and knowledge of what God wants you to know. The truth of his word has been made clear. The filter points on you that hinder you, that we'll talk about in just a minute, are the problems. He has created his word to be clear. It is clear. What he wants you to know is clear. So this idea that I could read a passage of scripture and understand everything in it is not the point. It's not the point that I would read a passage of Scripture and understand everything in it. I might be confused by or even uncertain or even completely unaware of the historical context. I may not understand, as the particular ruler is mentioned, who that is, what land did he rule, when did he rule. I may not understand those things. And those context clues, while helpful to you and I to understand, aren't the meat and bones of the narrative which is what's been made clear, the truths that God wants you to know. He wants you to know who he is, what he asks, and how he wants to save you. These are the things he wants you to know. And so for you to come to a text and for you to say, man, I don't even know who Artaxerxes is. Man, I don't, even know. I don't understand. Okay, that's okay. And you can gain that information. And trying to chase after those details and trying to understand the specificities that you find that are confusing, that's great. Chase those things down. They are helpful. But the truth, the meat, won't get lost. So, let's switch gears and let's now talk about what the scripture, what the doctrine of the clarity of scripture does mean. Okay? We've talked a lot about what it does not mean. Let's talk about what it does mean. That'd be good? Get me a little swig of water. We'll do this. First, let's give this a definition. Clarity of Scripture. The clarity of the Scriptures means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Now, I've taken this definition straight out of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I think it's a helpful definition. So keep in, bear in mind what we're saying. It is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. 
Okay, so what does this mean? It means that the scriptures are clear enough for the simplest person to live by. And when we say simple, we're talking about someone who maybe doesn't have a PhD. We're talking about, we're not saying that the scriptures are only clear to the person who's done nothing but study the scriptures their whole life, and they've dedicated themselves to the study of the original language and these kinds of things. Those are helpful and good and right things to have happen, and those people can help us. But that is not what clarity means. Clarity means you and I, the average person, have access to and can understand the word of God if we come to it seeking his help and being willing to submit ourselves to it. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So the average person is able to read and understand God's word. Number two, it means that it is clear on essential matters. I talked about this a moment ago. We're not going to miss out on what we need to know. Even though we may not understand every nuance of the historical and cultural meaning, even though there might be confusing passages, right? So there are confusing passages, right? We, talk, we, we talk, talked about how that has already been acknowledged by the scriptures itself. In fact, you and I could probably think of a dozen off the top of our head. I remember reading that. I don't know what it means. What does it mean when the scriptures say, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk? I don't know. That's weird. That's a little creepy. And it sounds like you're boiling something to eat, and I don't want to eat that. That sounds really, really weird. Why is the scripture telling me not to do it? I don't know. I don't understand every nuance of why that's there, but you know what I do know? I'm not supposed to do it. I'm not supposed to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Fair enough. I won't do it. So I'm not missing out on what God wants me to know in that passage. He says, don't do this. I may not understand every nuance of why, but I understand what he's asking. The entire book of Revelation. The entire book of Revelation is filled with stuff that tends to be confusing and off-putting and scary for Christians to read. I don't know what all this means. I don't get it. It's super confusing. There's all these allusions and references. I'm not sure. Is this real? Is this, is this figurative? I don't understand. Help me, help me. I don't understand. But you know what you're not going to miss out on? What the book of Revelation teaches. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And when he does, it's going to go really, really poorly for those who do not trust in him. And it's going to go really, really well, ultimately, for those who do. And if you see that in Revelation, then you have not missed the meat of the story. You have not missed the meat, the, the significance, the kind of essential characteristics of what God is wanting to reveal to you in his word. Is there more to understand in that book? Oh, man, absolutely. Can I understand the nation of Israel better? Can I understand all of these other things better? Yes. But you won't miss that your Savior is returning and that he's going to meet justice out. And justice is going to be meted out either on the unregenerate because of their sin, or he's going to say, I paid for that one. That one's mine. And that's good news. And that isn't lost on us when we read the text. <clears throat> Number three. Oh, one more, one more thing on this. So the question can come up, right, when we talk about the clarity of Scripture, when we talk about uh, you're not going to miss the things you really need to know, right, the essential things. The question can come, okay, if that's true, Carl, if they're so clear, then why do we have all these denominations? Why, if the central, most essential teachings of the Scriptures are not lost on us but are clear, why do we have so many denominations 
of evangelical Orthodox Christianity, even in the United States. There's a, there's a different denomination on every corner that believes different things about things that we might say are fairly important. Why do they believe all these different things? And the answer is not because the scriptures aren't clear. They are. They have had, they've had division over a particular issue that they can't sort out with one or they can't reconcile. But the scriptures are clear. There is a right answer on every one of those questions. And so if you have two people have opposing positions, either one of them is right or both of them are wrong, and there's some third right answer. But the scriptures are clear. God has an answer and a right way for every confusion, every debate, every conflict that we have over his word. There is a right answer. Our inability to deduce and to suss out what it is is on us. So, next one. The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture means that it will require from you and I effort. I can't just read it and be like, got it. I need to read it. I need to pray about it. I need to study it. I need to consider. I need to ask for the Lord to help me. Because apart from him, I cannot. 2 Peter chapter 3 Paul speaks of Paul's Peter speaks of Paul's writings as being hard to understand, and I'll be honest with you, I don't like this part. I don't like the fact that it requires effort. I would so much rather go home and read my Bible and totally get it, and then move on to other things and do other stuff. That's what I would like to have happen. But in his grace and in his mercy, he has made it so that I must continue to return. I have to continue to come back. I have to keep coming back and say, God, help me. Help me understand what you're saying. Help me so that I am constantly at need, in need of him. I am constantly begging him to reveal more to me. Help my eyes to be clear that I might see what you're saying to me. Because I know that you've made it clear. I can't understand. Will you help me? The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture means that we must, you and I, must be willing to obey what we find. So James chapter 1, verse 22 says, But be doers... Of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So we can't come to God's word and look for what he's saying and then see it and then not respond. The scriptures themselves are telling us we have a responsibility. We are culpable for the things that we read and understand. If I read that God doesn't want me to commit adultery and then I do it anyway, then I have not come to his word with the right posture of heart. If I come to the scriptures looking for something in particular, if I come trying to find what I want to find rather than trying to say, what has he shown, that I'm coming to the scriptures with the wrong posture. We have to be willing to obey what we find in the scripture. Next, the doctrine of the clarity of scripture is dependent upon the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 27 of the same chapter says, Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Verse 34, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 73, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. My ability 
to rightly understand what God has revealed is dependent upon the Spirit's work in me. I need God to help me understand. I need God to give me eyes to see what he has made clear in his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit or God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It's the perishing they can't see and understand. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so the idea here is that we are talking about the Spirit of God illuminating to us the clear teachings of the Scripture. And so if we were to get up right now and clear this room and walk out on the hall and leave these chairs just like they are, and then I brought you in here one at a time with the lights off and the windows blacked out, and I said, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to count the chairs in this room. You're going to say to yourself, okay, if I remember right, there's just kind of two blocks of chairs. So all I got to do is just walk to the back row and just count and just kind of find my way, feel my way through. I'll figure it out. I'll be able to figure it out. I'll be able to give you the right number. But what if I had taken some of the chairs and hung them from the ceiling? What if I would put some in the windowsill somehow, put them up there with some like duct tape? It's a super helpful, useful tool. Then you would come in here and count the chairs on the floor and you'd get the wrong answer. Now, the information is here. It is super clear how many chairs there are. Problem is, you can't see them. You are unable to see how many chairs there are because the lights are out. But if I flip the lights on, they're like, oh, super good. Let me count these. Oh, sneaky in the window. I got you. Oh, on the ceiling too. And you're going to give me the right answer because you have had the truth that is already in this room illuminated to you. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit illuminates to you and I what's taking place, what has already been made clear in the Scriptures, and he's illuminating it to our hearts. And the Scriptures here say he even darkens the minds of those who are far from him. To the unbelievers, they can't see it correctly. Number four, when we think about this doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, and I've said this many times up until now, and I want to dig into it for just a moment, is that any difficulty that we find is ours, not the Scriptures. Okay, and there's three main reasons why this would happen. The first is, we have not let the Bible interpret the Bible, right? So I started, my, my, I started reading my Bible for the first time uh, November of last year, and I get to December, and I've read nine chapters or something, and I find a tricky passage. And I say, well, the Bible's not clear. Well, you haven't read the Bible yet. You've got to keep reading. That is something that will have to come for you later as you continue to read and let the Bible interpret the Bible. God has made his teachings clear. The difficulty is you have not familiarized yourself with them. That's where you're, that's where you're hitting a roadblock. The second one is we have presuppositions that are hindering us. All of us do. We all have some sort of idea that we got before we got to the Scriptures that we then bring with us to the Scriptures and say, I want to find this. So if I think that, ba- that infant baptism is the right way to go, and for the record, I do not, but if I did, I could come to the Scriptures and I could say, all right, let me find this. Let me find a way to justify this thing that I like, that I think is right, that feels good to me, and I want to find a reason for it. I can, I can piecemeal together 
a fairly decent argument that sounds pretty good. But I'm coming to the scriptures, not asking for God to show me what he's made clear. I'm coming into the room and saying, I would like for there to ch a chair to be in this uh, window right here. And so I'm going to put one up there. That's where I think they should be. I'm coming in with my presuppositions and saying, I will, will show you where the truth is. So I'm the source of truth when I come with my presuppositions. And here's the, here's the tricky part, you guys. We all have them. It may not be something as big as infant baptism, but you've got something. There's something that you've learned somewhere else. There's something in your heart that wants things to be a certain way. And you're going to bring that to the Scriptures and look for it. And what we need to be doing is coming to the Scriptures and saying, God, reveal to me what you have declared. Show me what you have made clear. Third one is sin. Sin is clouding our ability to understand God. So uh, if I wrestle really badly with depression and fear and anxiety, then the passages in the text that, are, that I find condemning, I'm going to exalt those. I'm the worst. And then see right here, it's all over the Bible. I'm the worst. And I'm going to downplay all the texts that say God is good and he is faithful and my identity is in Christ. And because he was perfect, I can be counted as perfect. I'm a wicked, awful sinner, but because of Christ, I'm counted clean, and I can downplay that and elevate these others because my, my sin, my, my sin of not trusting God's truth is hindering me from seeing the word of God correctly. And so this would be like if I sat you down at a table and I had three sheets of paper, and I tell you one of these sheets is white, one of them is blue, and one of them is green. But before you look at them, I want you to put on these green glasses. As you put on these green glasses, well, now everything looks green. You can tell that there's some different colors. One of these is darker, one of them is lighter, but they all look green to me. That's coming to the Bible with your presuppositions. You're coming with a problem that's hindering you from seeing what God has made clear. And if I take those green ones away and I give you blue ones, you're going to see everything is blue. Your sin is going to inhibit you from seeing what God, the Spirit of God, has revealed clearly in the Word of God which is why we need the Spirit, which is why we need to ask. We need to submit ourselves to him and say, God, I am broken. I can't see what you have made clear. Help me. Give me eyes to see. Give me understanding. So when the psalmist says, give me understanding, he's not saying, make me clear. Make Carl the author of your clarity. The clarity belongs to the Scriptures. The clarity belongs to the Word of God. I'm the problem. I'm the hindrance. The scriptures are clear. And so when we ask for understanding, when we ask for him to help us, what we're asking him to do is to help us put on clear glasses, or maybe no glasses at all, so that we can see correctly what he has revealed. And the way that he's revealed it is a clear way. So let's recap, and then we'll have Jeff come up, and we'll do a little Q&A. Sound good? Okay. So... The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture does not mean that we can fully know God. We cannot. It does not mean that, we can, that everything we find is going to be equally simple. It won't be. It doesn't mean that interpretation and explanation from others is somehow unneeded or unhelpful. It is needed and it is helpful. It doesn't mean that all subjects and doctrines are going to be equally clear in all places. It won't be. And it doesn't mean that the Scriptures are clear enough for everyone to know what we need to know. It does mean that the scriptures are clear enough for everyone to know what we need to know. It does mean that it's clear on essential matters. It may not be clear to me in the details. I can understand the details with outside help, 
but the essential matters of what God is teaching are clear to me. It does mean that any difficulties or problems are ours, not the scriptures. If our hope is in Christ and we belong to him and we come submitting to the spirit and saying, help me see rightly, help me submit myself to you, let me learn from you and let me obey you, then the Holy Spirit's gonna illuminate that to us, to our hearts in a way that's helpful to us. He is our helper. and He's gonna give us all we need to understand the word of God. Okay, Zach Lee, coming up. A little Q&A. Who's got questions? Make sure your question is clear and necessary or we will not answer it. Okay, so uh, Dr. Steve's question, just to kind of repeat it, is could God not have made his word clearer? So we agree that it's clear, but could it not be clearer? Because when you come to things that Christians debate on, such as baptism or church government or the meaning of communion or whatever, why did God not make it clearer so that we wouldn't even have to have those debates? We could just all be unified Christians and we could stop fighting each other and having different names on our church and these kind of things. That question, though, and that's a great, that's a fantastic question. That question, though, assumes, when he talks about presupposition, it assumes your culture actually back onto the text. So the text never has to say infant baptism because infant baptism doesn't exist in the early church. The first person to do infant baptism on record is a guy named Irenaeus uh, from about the uh, 200s AD. So before then, they don't have to say no infant baptism because that's not what baptism, the word baptize just means dip. Baptize is not a translation. It is a transliteration. It's where we just take the Greek word and we put it in English letters. The word, though, just means dip. The original audience would have read, John the Dipper, go therefore and dip in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how they would have read it. In fact, the Greek Orthodox Church has always done baptism by immersion because they know Greek. And so you don't actually, to the original audience, those kind of things are clear. Those don't come up until later on. And so the only reason they're unclear to us is because we are in a different culture in a different context. So what would be weird is if God were to say, communion is not transubstantiation, it's not consubstantiation, it's this view that would have actually been less clear to the original audience because that would be a future debate, if that makes sense. So the only reason that we think that God should have made it clear or anything like that, which I, listen, I, I uh, in a sense, study the Bible for a living, and there's a lot that seems really unclear to me. It's typically because of my presuppositions or my culture that I'm reading back onto the text. It's not that if I was a Jew in the first century and someone would have explained baptism or whatever, that I wouldn't have understood it. Uh, and we're actually going to have a whole lesson, by the way, coming up when we, you know, just in a few weeks where we talk about presuppositions and how to find those and how to question those. So. Dip into something. So I'm going to dip you in water. I'm going to dip you in. Yeah, but to, to be saying, why, why do some, so basically saying, why can't, why didn't God just say, baptism's really great and really important, but you don't really need it for salvation. And what I'm saying is because the original audience is linking their conversion experience with baptism. They don't have a later Catholic sacramental understanding of baptism. What they're doing is they know that it's faith in Christ that saves, but the way they do that in the first century is through baptism. So baptism is the altar call of the first century, if you want to think of it that way. They don't have a, you know, come forward just as we play, just as I am for the 12th time to get the emotions up, come forward, the buses will wait. That is baptism for them. I mean, that is, uh, that is kind of the altar call of the first century. Uh, and so in their mind, you, they, they don't have, we have later questions. So theology develops as people get things wrong. You have the early church just worshiping Jesus, and yet they're monotheists. So you kind of have this incipient 
uh, Trinitarianism. Then all of a sudden you get a guy like Arius that comes along and is like, I think Jesus is just a created super angel. And we're like, no, wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. We don't mean the same thing. And then we have to flesh out theology to figure out what that means. So the early church is just putting their faith in Christ and being saved. And about around the same time they do that, they get baptized. And it's later on when you start getting questions of, well, what if somebody didn't get baptized? Or what if somebody's on their deathbed and they can't get baptized? And so then as these questions come up, you have to start wrestling through, man, what does baptism really mean? And so it's these later difficulties that come up that, uh, that cause us to have to wrestle with things being unclear, not because they're not originally clear in the original context in God's word, if that makes sense. That's all we're saying with clarity. Clarity is a truth about scripture, not a truth about us as we try to interpret scripture. Yeah, so his question is, when the Bible talks about that we know something, so what's so interesting is the Bible tells us that you can know certain things about God without the Bible. That's funny to think about for a second, Uh, but we can know certain things about God without the Bible. And one of the things it talks about is God's moral commands, because what Paul is trying to do in the first part of Romans is he's trying to show how all people are under sin no matter what. So the Jews are under sin because they have God's law and break it. The Gentiles are under sin because they still do what they know by nature is wrong, even though they don't have God's law. That's his whole point. And so your question is, does that mean that they know certain specifics, or is it just that there are general things? I think the short answer is, it means that they know that there's enough to where they have failed in some point. But I thought Carl's example was really helpful and good. What he said is, you can go to any culture that's ever existed and they will have some sort of rules against murder. Now, they're not all the same. Some cultures will allow you to murder somebody for certain reasons. Some cultures, a king has ultimate authority, he can kill whoever he wants. But every culture agrees that any random person just can't kill people whenever they feel like it. Uh, Every culture has had some sort of ethic around sexuality. So some cultures will allow you to have one wife, some will allow you to have multiple wives, but everybody agrees you can't have just any woman that you want anytime you want her. And so even though the, the way the rule plays out is different in different cultures, the fact that there's still some sort of standard, the fact that there's not a culture that arises that just says, yes, murder everyone all the time, yes, sleep with everyone all the time, the fact that that is not there shows that there's something in our hearts uh, that realize something's wrong here. Thieves don't like it when people steal from them. Think about that, right? There's something inside of us where to we, we realize something is wrong. We have that twinge of guilt. We still have a conscience. And as part of God's common grace, he has given us this sense where we realize we've done certain things. Now, it doesn't mean, like Carl was saying, that we know every individual rule apart from the Bible. There are cultures, for example, that have felt differently about homosexuality. We have to then go to the Bible to say, okay, how many wives can I have? Uh, what about homosexuality? When is something murder versus when is it righteous killing, like in self-defense or in the military or something like this? And so you have to start wrestling through these things. Uh, but the point still stands that there are ethical systems. Every country you go to has laws. Let me say it that way. They're different laws, but there's laws, and that's important. So, Yeah, so the, the question kind of deals with, uh, you know, we as Protestants would in some sense dog Roman Catholics for really strong traditionalism, and not just for traditions, but for traditions that are held on the same authority as Scripture. I mean, when the Pope makes certain declarations, they're on the same level as Scripture. It, when he speaks, you know, St. Peter speaks, <clears throat> when he's doing this officially from his throne, his chair, what's called et cathedra. And so the, his question is, when the uh, Roman Catholic Church has this official tradition, and then you have Protestant groups which say, no, we just follow the Bible, yet they will split over certain traditions— What's going on there? And here's what I think is going on. Protestants are not being very Protestant in that moment. The the, the downside of Protestantism, let me tell you why the Reformation is in a sense a failure. The Reformation was where they were hoping to reform the church, not to break apart from it. There's only one church, right? Those who truly know Christ. 
If, if we're the body of Christ, you don't want to take his bride and rip off her leg and throw it over there and rip off her arm and throw it over there. There is meant to be unity. So when Protestants split over not biblical issues, because that would still be having the Bible at the highest authority, but when they split over tradition issues, you change the music or you change the carpet or we've changed this little minor thing, whatever it is, what they are doing in that moment is they are being somewhat Catholic. They're saying, my tradition is now as important or more important than scripture and it's worth splitting over. And so that's where we have to be careful. But the, the, the Achilles heel of Protestantism is if the Bible is now open to the common person because it's, it's clear, you're now gonna get 100 denominations. But your only alternative is to have one denomination, and if it becomes corrupt, everything else becomes corrupt. So I will take that problem we have to deal with as Protestants, just knowing that some people are going to get crazy interpretations, I will take that over not even having the option of reading the Bible myself and having it interpreted for me, and then when somebody at the top gets it wrong, everyone else now has to get it wrong. It's a cheery question. Said the Reformation was a failure. I am a Protestant, and in a sense, the Reformation was a success, but in another sense, it was a failure. It would have been great had Luther have reformed the whole church, and we still had only one church kind of today or something. That would have been better, but this is the better alternative to being under a system which in some areas is unbiblical. Who else? Questions? We still have about seven minutes, and no one's allowed to leave, even if there was a fire. You have to stay the next seven minutes. So here, here, here's a way to, so just to, to repeat his question. His question is, uh, basically, let me just summarize the question. Uh, on what issues should we break fellowship over? That's really the question that he's asking. Because if there are other Protestants even who disagree on things such as the meaning of communion or baptism or church government, on what issues do you say this is so important we must hang on to it and break fellowship versus which ones do you say that you don't? Uh, and that question is the question of being ecumenical. It is the question of how closely I'm linked to other groups. What are issues to split over? Traditionally, and this isn't just a Parkway thing, but traditionally, Baptists have said, uh, because baptism is extremely clear in the scriptures, it's only unclear in church history, right? You have people coming out of Roman Catholicism who've all been infant baptized, who are now trying to figure out what baptism means, so they read their presuppositions back onto the text, and you get a new idea of baptism, like in the Presbyterian church, that no one's ever held. You have infant baptism in the early church, but it's Catholic, regenerative, birth you again as a baby, infant baptism. It's not covenantal infant baptism uh, where it doesn't regenerate you, which is a later idea. And so I guess what I'm saying is traditionally Baptists have said it's clear enough in the scriptures to say that we will break fellowship over these things. Now, or well, maybe another way to say it this way is we're not breaking fellowship in the sense of we're not saying they're not Christians. This is why you have denominations. The difference between a denomination and a cult is as follows. A denomination means you agree on all the essentials and you consider the other people in those other denominations Christians, but you just differ on some of these more minor issues like baptism, like your view of the end times, like whatever it might be. When you're a cult, it means you disagree on these major things, right? You disagree on these major things. Denominations are actually named after what distinguishes you from other Christians, this is why you don't have a denomination called the Trinitarians, because all Christians are Trinitarian, or a denomination called the Jesus is the Son of Godians, because all Christians believe Jesus is the Son of God. Your denomination reflects those little things that make you different from other Christians. Baptist, because we do baptism by immersion, originally called anabaptism, rebaptizing instead of uh, as infants in sprinkling, or uh, Presbyterian, because they have a church government of multiple elders, what are called presbyteroi, and these kind of things. Anyway, you have to decide what will make you when you work with other Christian groups, you work in concentric circles. I'm only going to plant a church with somebody who's very similar to me in theological belief. I will partner with a church that may be Presbyterian, though, because we're very similar on a lot of things. We just do, d disagree on things like baptism and, and who belongs to the church as far as church members. 
uh, I will go do social work with a Catholic. You know, go be uh, against abortion or something like that with a Catholic. And then I will go help build a house for a homeless person with an atheist. And so you kind of work in these concentric circles. And there's not a quick answer. You have to wrestle on every issue. Do we want this to be a dividing line? Would I take communion with a Presbyterian? Yes, I would. I think that's close enough to where the unity there is more important than our disagreement. However, if a Presbyterian wants to join our church, we would have to say, we're going to hold you accountable to the Scriptures, and we think the Scriptures are clear that you need to be baptized by immersion, and so we would have them be baptized. So you're just going to have to wrestle through these, and and people are going to differ. There's not a hard line here. Yeah, yeah, these requirements, and this is the whole thing, denominations arose because it was necessary. You can't just say, I'm going to just go to this church who knows what they believe. It was a way of saying, this is what we believe about this. And so eventually, yeah, you have to settle. Eventually, we can just say, I can say to my Presbyterian, and by the way, I wish I could be Presbyterian. I really like Presbyterians. All my heroes are Presbyterian. I just can't get around the infant baptism thing. And so if I'm talking to a buddy of mine that is Presbyterian, I'm going to say, I love you. You're a brother. We can do ministry together. And then if he sits down and he says, why don't we plan a church together? I'll say, that sounds like a great idea. What are we going to do when people talk about baptism? What are we going to do with church membership? And then we're going to have to ask that out, and we're going to say, I think we would disagree too much to do this. So you plant your own church, I'll plant this church. And so that's what you'd have to do. Mm. We have a positive, anybody have a positive note, a positive question? Like, uh, has the weather been beautiful this last week that we could answer? Carl, anything else you wanted to say or any, any uh, tidbits with any of these things? Or? I am actually ha- happy to teach you how to play the French horn. <laughs> uh, a cheap one is 1800 and a nice one is twelve grand. Yeah. Yep. Just waiting for that old French horn and uh, Tim with guitar ensemble on Sunday morning. You Just not, those two instruments that don't go together. I uh, do not want that. I uh, do not want that. Okay. Any other, uh, any other things real quick? Carl, would you pray for us? Yeah. We'll be dismissed. Father, we come to you and we say thank you. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for allowing us to be your people. What a gift it is to know you, to love you, to serve you, uh, to gather like this. Uh, to think uh, about your word and think critically about it, uh, to think really specifically about how you've organized and how you have revealed yourself through your word and how we can trust it and, and all of these things. It's been a joy to think through. And so, well, Lord, I pray that our hearts are encouraged this morning as we think about the, the reality that you've revealed yourself in your word and it's necessary for us to know you and to follow you and to obey you and to be saved, uh, that, uh, and that it is clear that we don't have to uh, depend upon experts to, uh, to help us understand what you want us to know, that you desire to let us know. You desire to speak to us, and you've chosen to do that through your word. So we thank you for it. We thank you for the blessing and the gift of the scriptures, and that we can uh, trust them, that we can depend upon them, that we can stand on them firmly and, uh, and know that what you have told us is true and that you are good, that you love us. And because you love us, you gave us your son, and that he has come, that he has made a way. It's through his perfect life and through his death, through his, gener- his uh, resurrection that we have life. Man, what a gift that we do not deserve. And so we thank you. We thank you that you love us that much. And so, Lord, as we study your word, both uh, how it's organized and how to think about it, and as we also uh, study it for our own edification, for our own greater understanding, Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see rightly what you have revealed. Help us to uh, understand what you have spoken to us through your word. We love you. We thank you that you love us. It is a joy to be your people. 
And so we pray that you'll find us faithful this morning as we uh, gather in a few minutes to worship you in spirit and truth, to sit under the teaching of your word and to, and to be faithful to what you've asked us to do, to not forsake gathering together. And so we do that this morning to honor you, to obey you, and to love one another. So we thank you uh, for all these opportunities that we have. It's in Christ that we pray, amen.